You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Paul Pearson is the John Gross Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a co-author of Auth Center, the author of Politics in Time, and the co-author of Dismantling the Welfare State. His new book, co-authored with Jacob S. Hacker, is Winner Take All Politics. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Really good to be here, Rick. Why don't you start with this reading? Okay, so I'm reading uh, just from the the introduction where we contrast what's going on in uh, the high end of the economy with everything else. While the money spigot flowed freely on Wall Street, the real economy remained trapped under the debris of the financial implosion of 2007. Even as Blankfein insisted that Goldman was doing God's work, apparently missing the passage of the Bible about how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven, tens of millions of homeowners were still reeling from the real estate crash that firms like his had helped create through heedless speculation in securities underwritten by subprime loans. Nationwide home prices had plummeted, wiping out nearly 40% of American families' home equity between December 2006 and December 2008. The unemployment rate hovered around 10%. For every job opening, there were six job seekers. State and local governments, faced with unprecedented budget deficits, were slashing gaping holes in the safety net, raising taxes, and threatening to lay off hundreds of thousands of teachers. Leading economists suggested it would be years before the country returned to full employment. The human toll in shattered careers, disrupted families, and lost security was incalculable. These two starkly divergent tales of 2009 represent just the most recent and painful chapter of a longer story. Over the last generation, more and more of the rewards of growth have gone to the rich and super rich. The rest of America, from the poor through the upper middle class, has fallen further and further behind. Like Wall Street's deep-pocketed denizens in 2009, the very richest of Americans have shot into the economic stratosphere, leaving middle and working-class Americans to watch their fortunate fellow men's ascent while remaining firmly planted on economic terra firma. In the phrase that leads this book's title, the American economy has become winner-take-all. Paul, you know, I remember back in the 90s, we heard a lot of talk about how America might be a welfare state. But your book suggests that America has become a welfare state. Well, there has been this dramatic change, as as what I just read points out, where the incomes of those at the very top have really skyrocketed, um, while everybody else's incomes have stayed uh, have stayed pretty close to to stable, and and the economy has become much less secure for most of us. And and the the concentration of income gains at the top is really staggering. It, their their share of national income has quadrupled or quintupled uh, over the last thirty years. And the central argument that Jacob and I make in the book is that politics has had a lot to do with this. So you're right to focus on the role of the state uh, in bringing about this economic transformation. You know, um, I love the way that you set this book up as a kind of a, a crime story. And in a sense, it is a crime story, but it's a crime story where the criminals can write the laws so that their crimes are not, in fact, crimes. 
Well, partly the reason we set it up that way is because we think that there are some deep mysteries in this story. Uh, the, the first mystery is how did inequality grow as much as it did? What happened uh, to the American economy? And so we, we spend a lot of time demonstrating that the conventional story that's told about this, which is that it's just, uh, it's inevitable given the changes that have taken place in the world, changes in technology and globalization, that it's inevitable that you would have growing income concentration. And we, we go to great pains to show that that's not right, that the, the typical culprit that people focus on, uh, technology or globalization, really can't explain what's the very particular story that's happened in the United States with this incredible concentration of gains at the very top. So that's sort of mystery number one. But as you're suggesting, it raises a deeper mystery, which is if government is really an important part of the story, how could that happen? I mean, it's, um, it's striking in a country where you have to win elections in order to govern that policies could become as tilted as they have towards those in the top 1% or top 10th of 1%. Now, uh, you have two great terms for two different visions of America. We started out back after World War II in a state that you called uh, Broadland, and now we are, as you describe it, Richistan, and I like that distinction. Well, it really, uh, we're trying to evoke the fact that the U.S. has really shifted. It's become a different kind of country in terms of how the economy is organized and how rewards are distributed. And Broadland, the world that existed between the 1940s and, say, mid-1970s, you know, it wasn't, some, it wasn't some egalitarian fantasy. It wasn't as if everybody was getting the same income by any means. Uh, but as the economy grew, all segments of the population shared in that economic growth. So you had, basically you had incomes going up uh, more or less in tandem. Uh, and in Richistan, which is the, the kind of economic world that we've moved to over the last 30 years, that is just not the case. Um, over that entire period that we look at, uh, about 40% of all income growth in the country went to the top 1% of the population. Uh, and in the most recent economic expansion before the, the terrible downturn that started in 2007, but if you look at the Bush administration up to that period, uh, over half of all income growth in the country went to the top 1%. You quote a, a variety of really amazing statistics in, in this book about how income distribution and wealth distribution. And I'd like you to talk about collecting these statistics and, and how, how much of what you found surprised you. Well, I, I think when we saw these numbers, we were shocked. And I, and I should say... Um, uh, that the research, the main research that we're drawing on, not the only research, but the main research we're drawing on uh, in uh, showing what's happened to income distribution is done by two economists, uh, French economists, uh, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez. Uh, Saez teaches here at UC Berkeley, as, as I do. Uh, and they went through one of, one of the problems with the data that we used to have about income distribution was that it didn't tell you very much about what was happening at the very top. Um, the, you know, this tiny sliver that it doesn't account for that many people, but accounts for an awful lot of national income. And uh, what uh, Piketty and Saez did was to go back and use income tax returns uh, to get at those, those numbers at the very top so you could see the full distribution of income uh, going all the way back to the earliest days of the 20th century. 
And what they found was that the, the share of those in the top 1% or the top 10th of 1% or the top 100th of 1% uh, had been very high in the Gilded Age, uh, in the period leading up to the Great Depression. Uh, and then that share had come down rather dramatically and had stayed down. This is the Broadland period. Um, all the way through the mid-1970s when it starts to go up uh, dramatically and steadily again. Uh, so uh, I, I think a lot of people realize, and, and when Jacob and I started working on this book, we realized that inequality had grown in the United States. But I think what is less well understood is the particular form that that growth in inequality has taken, which is that it's really those at the very top of the economic ladder that are pulling away from everybody else. Give us an idea in terms of incomes and numbers of people, what what you're talking about. Tell us about this top tenth of 1% and how much of their income is, is compared to somebody who's like in the solidly in the middle class. Right. So I, th- I think that's actually a, a good group uh, to focus on. Um, we're talking, so if you talk about the, the top tenth of 1%, uh, you're talking about people who have an, an average income of uh, about $7 million a year now. Um, so we're talking about you know, people who are – there's no question about whether these people are rich or not. These are people who are making, making uh, extraordinary incomes in, in, an, in an average year. And that compares with um, you know, an average household that might be making $50,000, $60,000 a year. Uh, today, um, that's with two incomes. Though. That's that's often with two incomes. So we're talking about how we're talking about households here when we talk about uh, the top tenth of one percent um, as well. Um, but what's striking is that um, uh, thirty years ago, that top group was making about two percent of income in the United States. Now it makes close to nine percent of of income. So it, just to to put that a slightly different way. In broad, at, the, at the end of the period when we were living in Broadland, this very rarefied economic group would have been making about one out of every $40 earned in the United States. Now they're making more than one out of every 10. That is staggering and, and scary. I, if, the, if the rest of us in Broadland had grown, we might be all sitting at the middle class might be pulling in 200 grand, I, I guess. And, and, well, the differences aren't aren't quite that dramatic, but they're but they are sizable. I mean, some so and we uh, we run a sort of um, uh, imagined uh, scenario of this. What would have happened if the economy had grown as it has over the last thirty years, uh, but uh, the the income distribution had not changed? Uh, and what you find is that middle class income that that all groups in the population below those in the top 5% would have higher incomes than they do today in that, in that imagined world. Uh, and that for a middle-class family, um, it would have added, uh, it, it, they wouldn't be making $200,000 a year. It's not because, again, those people at the top, they're, it's, they're earning you know, one out of every $10 earned in the United States. But it would have a notable effect uh, on the um, on the incomes of people in the middle, where they they would be gaining, I don't know, fifteen, say, fifteen percent of their of their income. Talk about um, now the the crime then is this just redistribution of wealth, what you call the trickle up economy, which is a great phrase. 
Well, I, I think this is a really um, fundamental issue. And many people who have talked about inequality, uh, including most, I, I would say most economists who have talk, talked about it and, and most public officials, talked about rising inequality as if um, it was sort of a force of nature. Um, uh, Secretary Henry Paulson, who was Secretary of the Treasury under Bush, had been the head of Goldman Sachs before that, uh, gave a speech about inequality before rising inequality before the Great Recession hit, in which he said, it's just a fact of economic life and there's no point in blaming any political party. He obviously intended us not to blame the Bush administration, uh, but he was making a point that a lot of economists agreed with, which, which was the idea that this is just about uh, technology or globalization. But as we argue in the book, uh, if you look at the, the numbers closely, it's very hard uh, to accept that as an explanation. Um, technology and globalization are changes that have affected all the affluent democracies, the advanced economies. In fact, most of our main economic competitors, uh, you know, if you think of the, the developed countries, Europe, Canada, Japan, uh, they're more exposed to the international economy than we are. They use all the same technologies that we do, and yet very, very few of them have seen anything like the shift in income towards those at the very top that's taken place in the United States. There's a, there's a particular story that's going on here, and what we argue in the book is that uh, government has had a lot to do with this, that it isn't as if there are just these natural markets out there that we're living on um, some frontier in which uh, the economy's operating and government doesn't have anything to do with it. And we run through a whole series of areas in which what the government is doing or not doing has had a big effect on the transformation of the economy. And that includes changes in taxation, uh, changes in financial regulation, which is, it becomes a critical issue in the American economy during this period, uh, what happens to labor unions, uh, what happens to executive pay. These are all areas where government really matters and where, we argue in the book, government has come to weigh in much more on the side of the haves or the have-it-alls, as we put it. Now, you talk about something about SBTC, skill-based technological change, and that's the first culprit that's often blamed, saying, basically, we all need to go back and get a new degree in the internet. We right, right, right. So this, and this has been a, 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 a standard argument that, that economists use to try to explain growing inequality, that, that the world, the economy have shifted in ways that make um, advanced education more and more important in determining economic rewards. Um, and um, it's not surprising in some ways that economists would reach for, for an apolitical kind of explanation. And of course, there are many, uh, people like uh, Henry Paulson, as I mentioned before, uh, quick to sign on to that because it absolves them of any responsibility for what, what happened. And, and it can lead everybody to sort of do a... Um, a kumbaya uh, <laughs> policy song about how we just need to get more education and that will solve all of our problems. Um, but unless they're gutting education budgets, that's a little right. Bit of a problem. So it's not it's not clear that we're moving education <laughs> policy in, in the in the right direction. But even even more, I, we're highly skeptical that a shift in the level of education would ha have a dramatic effect on. Uh, this shift in income distribution because, again, the gains are so concentrated. Uh, almost 10% of Americans have postgraduate degrees. 
and of those, so highly educated um, workforce. Uh, but, but most of those people have not been sharing at all uh, in these economic gains. So, uh, you know, the gains are much, much more concentrated. Uh, we use a different analogy, actually, uh, one that, um, uh, that an economist, Greg Mankiw, has used, which is, you know, think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, with the golden ticket, right? There's like one candy bar out of every million or 10 million uh, that has the golden ticket in it. Um, and th that doesn't, that's not so much about skill bias, te technological change. I mean, we're not saying that, that that doesn't have some role. It does have some role in the shift in, in income distribution. Uh, but there are a lot of other things going on, too, that are producing uh, such highly concentrated rewards. Now, politics has many alibis for this crime. So I'd like you to talk about some of the alibis that are given to the political realm and why those alibis don't float. Well, the biggest alibi is just to say government's not that important. I mean, that's, that, that is typically what, what economists would say, including a lot of liberal economists. They say, well, government's just not important enough uh, in its role in the economy to shape these kinds of outcomes. Uh, and I think we document pretty clearly in the book that that's not the case if one recognizes the many, many ways in which government involvement comes into play. Um, the most obvious way in which government does matter is uh, taxation. Uh, and uh, that people are willing to acknowledge, okay, well, tax, tax policy has maybe come to favor the rich a little bit more. Uh, but actually, over the last 30 years, and it's been true uh, not just when Republicans are, uh, are ascendant, though that's been, a, that's been a significant factor, but even when Democrats are ascendant. It started in the late 1970s when, um, uh, when Jimmy Carter was president and when Democrats controlled the House and the Senate. Uh, tax policy has become much, much more favorable to those at the very top of the income distribution. That most people don't realize this, but the tax code used to be, if, if, you, if you look at that top 1%, which is a group that we're quite interested in, tax policy within that top 1% used to be steeply progressive. Now, what that meant was that uh, somebody who was at the bottom of that 1%, who was, say, a lawyer or a doctor who was very well paid, but not in the stratosphere, they were paying a much lower tax rate uh, than were the true winners of the winner-take-all economy or, you know, the, t the, the true high flyers, uh, say, you know, corporate executives um, or bankers. Those people were paying much, much higher rates of tax than people at the bottom of the top 1%. That, and that's the group. So, again, these people who are the top 10th of 1% or top 100th of 1%, that's the group that has really benefited from changes uh, in tax policy over the last 30 or 40 years. So that now you have a situation where uh, Warren Buffett um, or um, uh, the Lloyd Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, are basically paying the same marginal tax rates as uh, people, as, as those lawyers or doctors who would, who would have been paying much lower tax rates 30 or 40 years ago. So there's been a, a, a really substantial shift in the distribution of taxes and the progressivity of the tax code at the top. And, and we suggest in the book that that, that alone probably accounts for you know, roughly something like a quarter or may, maybe as much as a, a, as a third of the shift in income distribution of this top group. So that, that's obviously government. 
but then there are a lot of other areas too. Financial regulation is by far the most important, where um, th- there was a concerted effort to free up the financial industry uh, from substantial oversight uh, from government. Over, you know, beginning in the late 70s again, um, continuing the 1980s, but then really taking off in the 1990s uh, and in the last decade, precisely the period where these top-end incomes grew the most, and, and banking was really at the heart of that. Um, and so the idea that this is something that just happened naturally, where public policy wasn't involved, we're highly skeptical of that. Well, one of the things you point out really effectively in the book is just how pervasive the effect of government in the economy is. I mean, banks, every single regulation, every single transaction, they make money. Government is right there. It's at the core of the economy. It's so pervasive that it's almost invisible. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a – and it it partly reflects – um, a kind of casual way in which we typically talk about the economy, which is just not justified, uh, which is to treat markets as somehow natural and pre-political, when the reality is that you cannot have a functioning economy, certainly not a functioning modern economy, uh, without a lot of rules of the road uh, that are established by government. I mean, even so this sort of... Um, naive frontier vision of what an economy was like. The way that, say, you know, when, when Sarah Palin uh, talks about how Alaska is, you know, the frontier, as if it's free, as if the, the Alaskan economy was free of government involvement, when in fact Alaska is the most heavily subsidized per capita, most heavily subsidized uh, state in the union. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of... Um, simplistic view of how the economy operates that kind of airbrushes government out of the picture that is that is not realistic and I think blinds us to the ways in which changes in government policy uh, can have a big effect on where the, how the economic rewards that are being generated get distributed. Uh, accompanying this on the other side of, of the abyss is the decline in uh, labor unions and protections for laborers that you cite after World War II, a third of people were in unions, and now you look, have to look hard. You have to go to the grocery store to find somebody who's in a union. Well, yes, organized labor, I think, is, is a really important part of the story. And I think to preface what I want to say about that just a, just a little bit, uh, you know, one, once we get through this mystery of how did inequality grow and we say, well, actually, government policy is really important here, government is important here, uh, that that leads to a deeper mystery, which is, well, how can that happen in a political system, again, where um, you've got to win elections in order to govern? And it seems, it's, it seems at first glance hard to understand how that system can become so responsive to such a small fraction of the population. And so that's really the the deeper puzzle that mm-hmm. we focus we're political scientists we're our, our our main expertise has to do with thinking about how the political system operates and so that puzzle of how we could go from a political system that supported broadland uh, to one that supports richistan is really the core of the book and the argument that we make is that a lot of the transformation has to be understood 
not by looking at elections, uh, we'll call the politics of electoral spectacle, mm-hmm. that most pundits, I think, uh, like to focus on, journalists like to, like to talk about because it's more entertaining, uh, that a lot of it has to do with what we call organized combat. Right. That, I like this idea. You have a very contrarian view. Yeah, I think we have. I think part of the reason uh, why uh, we can, we think that you can you can really focus on the political aspects of this is to understand that a lot of that combat is taking place through organizations. That these are the ones, these are the groups that um, play politics over the long haul and that focus on the real prize, which is what government does. Not policy. just who wins, not just who wins elections, exactly policy, but what actually the rules that actually get written, or in many cases don't get written, because often they're just interested in stopping government from doing things. That's an important part of the story as well. Drift, what we, what we call drift. So this, so this organizational combat is a central uh, part of true governance in between the spectacles of elections. And the central argument of our book is that there was a very sharp shift in the balance of organized combat beginning in the 1970s that continues to pervade American politics. Business becomes much more mobilized, much more intensively focused on controlling or at least heavily influencing what goes on in Washington. And their main opponent on economic matters is organized labor, and organized labor goes into a very dramatic decline uh, beginning in the 1970s. And that has a huge effect on uh, what we call this organized combat. You talk about 1972 is when NAM drove the first stake into the ground of organized combat. Tell us about NAM, National Association of Manufacturers. Well, the 70s, so, so one of the, the as you say, we're, we're contrarian in some of the ways that we talk about politics. And one of the ways in which we're contrarian is we really focus on the 1970s as being the critical decade. Mm-hmm. Most people who do talk about modern American politics, they either pick the 1960s, you know, which was Vietnam, uh, Martin Luther King, Nixon, um, as Good being movies. the 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 big movies, the the crucial. <laughs> I mean, certainly the most sort of visibly conflictual uh, decade in in modern American politics. Um, and you and and of course there are things that developed in the 1960s uh, that really do continue to resonate in American politics. Most especially, I think, around issues of race and the way that the Republican Party uh, becomes strengthened. Nixon being a, a chief architect of this in figuring out how how to how to use issues having to do with with race and crime and social unrest as a way to mobilize, in particular, sort of white working class support for the Republican Party. And that's a true, you know, that's, there's a lot to that story. And then the other decade people like to f- focus on is the 1980s and Reagan, for obvious reasons. But we argue that, you know, when one thinks about organizational combat as being central, that it's really the 1970s. That is dramatic because when you look at Nixon on domestic policy, you know he would be a liberal Democrat today yeah, on, have, on most economic issues. He'd have a hard time getting his agenda through a, a Democratic Congress. You know he, exactly. I mean, he supported he supported healthcare reforms that were in, in many ways more liberal than the ones that we're talking about today. He he supported a version of a guaranteed annual income for the poor. Um, you know, he supported expansion, various dramatic expansions of regulation on a variety of issues. Now, he was being pushed that direction partly by a liberal Congress. Um, but as we point out in the book, he was, 
you know, he he was basically comfortable with uh, Broadland and with the policy arrangements that supported Broadland. Um, but over the 1970s, the atmosphere in Washington changes, and it changes for both political parties, both for the Republicans mm. and the Democrats. And as you say, a lot of it starts with um, business mobilization in the early 1970s, partly because they're really, you know, they're getting um, – uh, they're getting shellacked, to use the president's recent term. They're getting shellacked in Washington in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, they're even with Nixon in the White House. They're getting um, shellacked on them. Is this is the the heyday of uh, Ralph Nader and Nader's mm. Raiders, and there are big expansions of sort of anti-business regulation going on, consumer protection, environmental protection, occupational safety, and business says we really need to get organized. Um, we need to um, be able to to lobby effectively for what we want in Washington and bring the situation under control. And as you say, the nat- so one step, uh, partly symbolic, but I think telling, the National Association of Manufacturers moves their office in 1972 from uh, New York, where it's been forever, uh, to Washington, D.C. And the head of NAM says, we understand now how central government is to our viability uh, and our, our, our profitability. Uh, and we need to be where the action is, is the way that, is the way that they put it. Uh, and th- it's not just NAM that's doing this. Uh, business is mobilizing on multiple fronts and on an unprecedented scale. Uh, you get the formation during this period of the Business Roundtable, which is a very powerful uh, business association involving uh, really the creme de la creme of American corporations, the biggest, uh, most successful American corporations. And the Business Roundtable uh, organizes as a, as a group that is uh, built around the idea that we want the CEOs of these companies actively involved in trying to influence policymakers in Washington and telling them what they need and what they don't want. And... Um, telling them what the repercussions will be. And learning. so business learns a lot about how to mobilize um, its networks, um, uh, vendors, employees, uh, raising huge amounts of money through uh, political action committees. Uh, so there's just a transformation over the course of a decade. Uh, and after the 1980s, it just continues to accelerate upward. There's a transformation in how much leverage organized business forces can bring to bear in Washington, D.C. And a large part of what they did was to bring those forces to bear against unions, making union uh, organizing more difficult, making kind of defanging the NLRB. I mean, I've always thought that it was quite unfortunate that we never saw the IT sector get unionized. And it seemed that there was a real moment there when it could have been. And it would have been a fairly transformative force because that's a huge sector sector of blue-collar, this whole new generation of blue-collar, white-collar workers. There is a, a big battle with organized labor that takes place over the course of the 1970s. Uh, and, you know, I, the story of what happens to labor, we think, is very important because in a world in which organized c- combat matters so much for governance, uh, unions are really the only major uh, organized force that 
has as a priority the living standards and economic security needs of ordinary Americans. Uh, and so on issue after issue that we deal with in our book, uh, whether it's tax policy or financial regulation or executive pay, uh, the only big organized force working on the side of those who are not the beneficiaries of Richistan is organized labor. But organized labor is getting weaker and weaker, especially compared with business over this period. Um, now, one thing that I think, one reason why I think people have missed the political confrontation that takes place in this period and the significance of it is because what's most significant in Washington in the 1970s is what doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. right? So this is, you mentioned earlier, this idea that we have of drift. Um, and it's part of the reason why people miss uh, what's happened to the role of government is that a lot of times the story looks like this. The economy is dynamic. Right? The economy is changing and society is changing. Uh, and as it does so, uh, regulations or policy arrangements that may have been enacted decades earlier are becoming you know, more and more um, rickety. Um, they need to be updated if they're going to continue to play the same kind of role that they played in the society. There's an old saying that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Right. So there's a lot of doing nothing that goes on um, in, in Washington today, and that's become increasingly true over the, la over the last few decades. So what happens with labor unions is you know, most of the rules, and you, you can tell almost exactly the same story for financial regulation mm. that you could tell for labor and, and industrial relations. Right? So the story is that policy arrangements were put in place in the 1930s and 1940s right, in response to the Great Depression. Um, but if you fast forward to the 1970s, those arrangements are starting to look, they may have been very well designed for banks or unions as they existed in the 1930s, but by the 1970s, the world is changing. So in the case of, in the case of banking, you know, no, there was no regulation of derivatives because in the 1930s, nobody had ever heard of derivatives, right? It was a new, it's a new financial technology, and the question is, what are you going to do about this new development? Are you going to update public policy to take this into account. Now, in the case of unions, this meant that a, a set of industrial relations rules that worked pretty well when most a lot of employment was in manufacturing and it was all located in the Northeast and the Midwest, didn't matter that much if Arizona or South Carolina had right-to-work laws that made it virtually impossible to unionize. By the 1970s, that model is breaking down. The question is, are you going to update it? Are you going to do something that's going to make it possible to organize unions in this new economy or not? And there's a pitched battle in Washington over that issue in the mm. late 1970s. 1978, the Labor Act. Leads to a dramatic, you know, a, 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 you know now there's one thing we talk about in the, in the book is the rise of the filibuster in the last 30 years as a way of ensuring that Washington do nothing on some of these issues. Uh, but in the late 1970s, there was a real filibuster, the kind that you would have seen in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, in which um, a couple of young Republican senators, um, including Orrin Hatch, uh, still, there, still there today, um, lead a filibuster against a, a major labor relations reform bill uh, in the U.S. Senate in 1978. And that bill uh, fails to pass by two votes. Um, because the filibuster is a really tough threshold, 
uh, and business mobilized. So an important part of, of our story, the historical story, is you get to the late 1970s, it looks like it should be a moment when liberalism is really going to take off because after Watergate, Democrats win big, big majorities in both the House and the Senate. They really big majorities. Uh, they get um, Jimmy Carter in the White House, and they've got an ambitious agenda. Um, and business mobilizes on an unprecedented scale. And Organization. They, they organize for organized. They mobilize mm -hmm. for organized combat, and they do so um, with a particular focus on picking off Democrats, right? So who are in swing districts. Uh, who or who maybe have some powerful corporation in their district who they feel a need to be attentive to. So we call in the book we call these folks Republicans for a day. Who you know they may be liberal Democrats on a variety of other issues, but on that that issue where there's some concentrated um, business interest that's really critical in their district, they're going to be they're going to be a reliable vote on the other side. Uh, and uh, on issue after issue. Um, uh, these liberal economic uh, initiatives are beaten back, uh, and by and the labor fight is the biggest fight of them all. Uh, and in the aftermath of that, you can see the whole tenor in Washington shift. People recognize, um, you know, if unions can't win under these circumstances, when they've got big Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, uh, and a Democrat in the White House, they're not going to win at all. And it really frees up business to adopt a much more aggressive anti-union posture, uh, which you start to see even before Ronald Reagan comes into office. Now, I'd like you to, to talk uh, about um, what happens when, as you say, the, the middle goes missing. Um, this is the, the fall of unions, but also uh, you have a really interesting uh, perception of what you call post-materialist uh, uh, liberalism, which is is kind of... Everything but the economy. Yeah, that's a very, a very nice way to put it. Um, so there, there is this fascinating question that one has to get to, even if one focuses on organizational combat, uh, that you do have to win. You do have to run for and win elections, and it matters who wins those elections. Um, we have a long discussion of the transformation of both political parties and that takes so place. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Scary. Uh, it, that takes <laughs> place over this period uh -huh. um, as, as we're moving from Broadland to Richistan. Um, but we don't, we don't want to argue that there's no difference between the political parties. That's not our view at all. We actually think on economic issues there are quite significant differences between the parties. Um, but to say that is not to say uh, that there haven't been substantial changes in the Democratic Party which have made it more open to, more sympathetic to the winner-take-all economy. And um, one important part of that story is that the nature of liberalism and organized liberalism in particular uh, shifts beginning in the 1970s. And, it, and not surprisingly in a way, it, it shifts sort of in line with the way that um, the economy is changing and that organize, organized political life in the country is changing. That is, everything tilts towards the affluent. So the aspects of liberalism that get stronger are the ones that can appeal to the affluent, whether it's um, issues having to do with feminism or environmentalism or civil rights. Uh, these are issues for which there is a substantial um, affluent 
organized affluent constituency. Um, the economy, not so much. <laughs> and there you see um, a big shift on Democrats uh, beginning in the, 19, in the late 1970s, increasing in the 1980s, and even more afterwards in which, and they're partly doing this, in, they're involved in organizational combat with the Republicans, and we tell the story about the Republican Party financially and organizationally becomes a real powerhouse uh, in the late 1970s. Four to five times as much as the Democrats, and all the Democrats have to rely on is their incumbency, and that's fading fast. Exactly, exactly. So there, um, and you know, one of the things about that, that financial advantage is it becomes critical around election time because they can get money to those the st- seats that are really up for grabs, the truly competitive seats. Uh, and we show in the, in the book, you know, there's a really interesting contrast between the election that we just experienced, 2010, uh, when the Democrats get hammered, uh, and the 2002 election, when Reagan in some ways was in a very similar situation to the situation that um, Obama found himself in. Mm-hmm. You mean in um, 1982? 1982, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in 1982, there's 10% unemployment. Uh, Reagan's poll ratings are actually lower uh, than Obama's poll ratings were at the time, his approval ratings. Uh, Republicans looking at that election thought, we're going to get destroyed. Their, their projections were that they were going to lose something on, on the order of 50 seats in the House. At a time where they didn't have that many seats in the House, they were already the minority party. Uh, but the Republican Party had such a huge financial advantage over the Democratic Party. Democrats basically had no money to give to their challengers who had opportunities to pick up these seats. Republicans were able to pour money into those seats, uh, and they ended up, instead of losing 45 or 50, 55 seats, they lost 26. And it's an interesting, you know, one can, can do these what-if stories. What, are, what would our image of Reaganism be and our image of President Reagan be if in 1982 the Republican Party had lost 50 seats in that election? It would have really changed, I think, the, the political environment uh, that, that he would have faced uh, in that, and, that, and that conservatism would have, would have faced. So organization really matters. Money really matters. Uh, and... Democrats as a party uh, have to start going where the money is uh, when they're when they're making their appeals and uh, thinking about uh, how to position themselves in Washington. One of the things that I think is uh, so fascinating uh, about your book is the way that you keep our eyes focused not on on the bread and circuses aspect of the elections, but on this kind of background machinations, not just the 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 organization of the of the the way that business is reaching out, essentially running the Republicans and getting deep tentacles into the Democrats, but also to talk about the policy changes because the kind of policy changes that were made during those times were subtle, difficult to describe, and Lots of people have you talk about how common the misperceptions are. Even now, people I don't think really realize the difference between the the well middle class and the ultra super duper one tenth of one tenth of one tenth of one percent rich. We we just don't even have a I think a comprehension of the scale of what's gone on. Well, I think that's right. Um, and yes, I think you, a major theme in the book is 
to encourage people to pay less attention to all the noise that's out there. Um, and of course, the media, not not this media that we're we're uh, we're involved in right now, but you know, TV is really where it's at in terms mm-hmm. of shaping most people's perception of what's going on. And um, TV news, uh, you know, they would be the first to admit um, they can't dig very far into policy because policy is boring. Uh, it doesn't make for good television. Um, I think it was a producer at CNN or um, it might have been an NBC who during the beginning of the healthcare discussion, said um, healthcare is bad for ratings. You know, just came right out and said healthcare is bad for ratings, um, and uh, unless, of course, you can turn it into, um, you know, angry town meetings and fights about death panels, and th- then it becomes entertaining again. And so that's that's the way they cover it, which of course is worse than probably worse than not covering it at all. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty striking thing, right? That you can have an issue like healthcare. A sixth of the economy, you know, fundamental matter for the standard of living. Reaches of into everybody's lives. Everybody's. I mean, you know, there is no domestic issue. Probably, maybe, maybe you could say finances is, is as important, but, um, but th- though that's less direct mm-hmm. for people. But, but you know, healthcare is just a, a huge issue for thinking about um, uh, the opportunities and uh, challenges that that ordinary Americans face. Uh, and yet the media, you know, really doesn't want to touch it when it comes to analyzing what's really at stake and, and what, the, what the governance choices are. Um, the, what they want is elections are great, you know, candidates are great because then you can focus on personalities and treat it like a sports event, you know, which team is up, which team is down. Um, and we're not saying, again, we're not saying that elections don't matter. They matter a lot. But there's a huge amount going on in the shadows. And if you're organized, you know, particularly if you're a relatively small, powerful, privileged group that's organized, you love it to be out of the spotlight, right? You, you want, you know, the, the, the more that you can try to accomplish what you're doing by keeping things off the agenda or by making sure that that incredibly complex and obscure but extremely important regulation is written in a way that allows you to drive a truck through it, uh, you know, that's that's where your focus is. Now, uh, one of the things you talk about, and that uh, we've seen that here in California, is the rise of the supermajority uh, requirement for legislation. So talk about how, I mean, we've fought that for years in California, and look where we are, um, and we're still, even though we've got a lot, some uh, relief from that, we're still not all the way there. Talk about how that's happened in Congress. Well, I, I agree this is an extremely important uh, change in American politics, and I, I, I would just underline they're both important and change. You know, I, think, <laughs> I think most people do not realize um, that the filibuster, while the filibuster has been around for a long time, the filibuster as we experience it today is something radically new in American politics. It's not like written into the Constitution. Please the filibuster stand is up. not mentioned. The filibuster <laughs> is not mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, it's a rule in the Senate, uh, a rule that the Senate has changed 
uh, at various points over over time. Uh, and until the um, the last, really the last 15 years, uh, the filibuster was something that was used only very rarely. It was seen as kind of like dropping a bomb uh, into um, into the legislature, and it was something you you reserved only for um, matters that were considered vital vital interests. Right. So so filibusters were rare. You know, what in practice what this means. I'm talking a little abstractly here. In practice, what this meant was that it was used to block civil rights legislation mm-hmm. uh, by uh, by Southerners. Uh, for a long, long period in American politics. Um, but even very controversial legislation uh, was not exposed to filibusters. Uh, the political scientist David Mayhew has done a wonderful analysis of FDR's effort to pack the court in mm-hmm. the 1930s. Hard to imagine a more controversial piece of legislation. And that legislation was defeated. But what people don't realize, what Mayhew uncovered by looking back at the historical record, is that nobody was even talking about filibustering it. It was just, you know, that wasn't seen as something that you did. Um, so it's only recently, and I think this uh, partly has to do with, um, part of it has to do with changes that were made in the 1970s that kind of backfired, that were designed actually to make filibusters less prominent in American politics, but turned out, at least over the long run, to make them more prominent because it made it easier to conduct them. And then they started to become seen as something more natural, and so mm-hmm. people felt freer to do it. Uh, and then the, the other thing that changed was the parties became more polarized uh, and more intense, uh, more, or, more organized. Now, and, one of the things you say in this book, I think that's really interesting about this polarization. We all think of polarization as two things moving apart from the center. But that's not exactly what has happened in America, is it? We've got the, the right has acquired more gravity like a neutron star and is drawing the left more towards the center. Well, we think I, um, uh, we do think that the evidence suggests pretty strongly that it's the Republican Party that has moved further, um, and there's some controversy about, about our view our view on that. But certainly on economic issues, I think it's it's hard to argue against, um, and it is really striking. So political scientists have developed ways of studying roll call votes over long periods of time to sort of position different members of Congress on a right left continuum. Uh, and what that evidence shows pretty clearly is that the Republican Party just keeps moving further and further to the right. right? Um, each generation of new members of Congress in both the House and the Senate is more conservative than the one that comes before. And it doesn't seem to matter what's happening out there in the world. When Republicans win elections, they become more conservative. When they lose elections, you might think, okay, when they lose elections, they're going to moderate and realize that they're out of touch. No, when they lose elections, they become more conservative. It's been a it's been a continuous rightward march, uh, and Democrats have actually shifted very little. Um, the 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 one big change that's taken place on the Democratic side is they've lost a lot of seats in the South mm. uh, as the two parties have changed, and so that's. Um, that's eliminated some of their more conservative members. But outside the South, Democrats are no more liberal today than they were 30 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, at least as best as the people who study these roll, roll call votes can tell. The Republican Party has has really moved a long way. Um, and so, yes, that means there's more distance between the parties, and it means um, that Republicans, uh, well, both parties, but I think in particular the Republicans have been more willing 
to uh, to use the filibuster whenever possible. And they've been helped by a, a, a number of conservative, as you call them, Demo- uh, Republicans for a day. And the, the Democratic Party, while it appears to still be Democratic, there you do document a lot of a movement towards the in the winner take all. Right. So this o- operates in different in different ways. Um, and you know, one thing. So there are a couple of things that have happened to the Democratic Party. Um, one is that as as powerful financial interests, powerful economic interests have become more important in the party. And and I think the evidence on that is pretty clear. We show it pretty clearly in the book. Mm. And that shows up in a couple of ways. Um, One is it often makes it very, very difficult to overcome Republican opposition Mm -hmm. on, on these contested issues because there will always be a handful of Democrats who will be holding you back. And if you're trying to marshal 60 votes, which you now need because the filibuster is being used on everything, it becomes almost impossible to do it. And that's, uh, that's the experience that we saw play out um, on health care reform, on financial regulation to some extent, uh, on the stimulus package where everything had to be pared down in this sort of desperate search to find that 60th vote. Um, and then the other thing is that many Democrats have just become more sympathetic uh, to the interests of the winners in the winner-take-all economy. And the, the clearest part of that story, I think, is to see, which, again, we document in detail in the book, the, the tighter and tighter connections between high finance uh, and the Democratic Party and, and especially Democratic policymaking elites. Mm-hmm. You know, think of the Clinton White House Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, um, very strong connections to mm-hmm. Wall Street. These are people who straight out of the top places in Wall Street firms during uh, beforehand and go right back afterwards. Well, there is a very um, there is a very quickly revolving revolving door, um, and it is a revolving door that now opens at penthouses. Um, which I think was less true 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, this is not something that we place a lot of uh, emphasis on in the book. We don't, because I think many people kind of dismiss <coughs> that, that kind of argument saying, oh, well, you're being conspiratorial and these are hardworking public servants and so on. Um, but it is, it is clear that um, the concerns of finance and of financial elites uh, are very well received in the Clinton White House and in the Clinton Treasury Department, and there's, you know, most notably, there's a a, a fight over whether or not derivatives should be regulated in uh, in the late 1990s, in which um, it's Democratic policymakers Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, who are beating back the efforts of regulators to say, look, you know, these, these new developing financial instruments are really dangerous. Um, there's a lot of risk that they, can, um, uh, that they can create a situation where there's contagion in the financial system and where the collapse of one firm can lead to problems for other firms. We need to regulate them. All of that got a lot of pushback uh, from uh, the Clinton White House and the Clinton Treasury Department. And of course, the other 
uh, big change that takes place again in the Clinton administration is the repeal of Glass-Steagall, uh, which is supported by um, high-level officials in the Clinton administration who either came from or went to uh, the financial industry um, uh, after their tour in, uh, in the White House. And, and the, the very famous quote by uh, the Citigroup uh, guy, Sandy Bergman, was it? Sandy Weil. Or Sandy Weil, who, yeah. who said, if uh, there are problems with our uh, attempt to uh, deal, go around Glass-Steagall, we'll just ask our good friend, Bill. Yeah, I think if I, if I remember right, it was um, his um, uh, the, the the guy who was doing the merger with uh, John Reed who who made that that comment who was head of Citibank at the time. But Sandy Weil is, you know, there are a lot of fascinating personalities mm-hmm. that uh, that one encounters in the in the course of the the book, um, and uh, Sandy Weil is one who we have some fun with because there's uh, there you know there's a, a great story right before the the crash came in 2007, 2008, in which the New York Times wrote this, you know, very favorable little front page story about Sandy Weil, in which Sandy Weil says, you know, we didn't rely on anybody else to build what we did. You know, we did it all. You know, we were rugged frontiersmen. And um, uh, at which point we point out that, that John Reed had made this comment at the press conference when they were announcing the merger. And somebody said, well, isn't this merger between uh, your company is going to violate Glass-Steagall? And uh, and uh, John Reed says, "Well, we'll just we'll just if there's a problem with that, we'll just ask Sandy to talk to his friend, the president." Uh, and apparently, there's also just the last little vignette about this is apparently while in his office later had uh, some big plaque uh, with a, a axe. On it or something that said, you know, shatterer of glass Steagall, you know. So he um, and had the pen from uh, from uh, Clinton's signing of the bill repealing Glass Steagall uh, uh, in his office as well. So, you know, there's a lot more connection between uh, Wall Street and Washington than that uh, that quote about being, uh, you know, rugged individualists suggested. Well, this leads me to ask you, one of the things you talk about in this book is I think the importance of stories, that we have these stories that circulate in the news and in our mind and in the culture, the rugged individualist, the frontier economy, that I think undermine our understanding and even our ability to understand what's happening because what's happening is pretty complicated. It happens pretty fast. And as you point out, it happens in the minutiae of policy in the shadows of the law. And it happens you know, through uh, powerful interventions by organizations. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I think we are pushing people to, to not buy into the standard way in which people think about how politics operates and what matters, and, which is very focused on individual personalities and very focused on elections and campaigns. And again, we're not saying those things don't matter, but we're saying that, that there's a lot of quieter, more complicated stuff that doesn't lend itself to television, but which is extremely important in a in a world in which government is very intimately involved in shaping the economy, uh, but does through does so through these complex interventions that are hard for us to 
hard for us to see and understand sometimes. And you know, one we make some references to or draw analogies from movies at various points in the book. And one in this context that we use is like it's like the kid in in Sixth Sense, the movie The Sixth Sense, in which he says, um, you know, I I see dead people. I'm different from other from other people. I see, I see these dead people walking around that other people can't see. Uh, and what we're suggesting is that if we need to develop the sense of seeing this kind of organizational combat, you know, seeing the way in which mobilization and organization um, helps to shape the agenda, helps to uh, shape who gets put forward, what kinds of messages we hear, um, uh, helps to shape not just whether something about finance uh, passes, but what the actual thing that passes is and what it actually does. Um, you know, all of those things involve uh, a lot of fighting a very complex kind um, that, that organizations really thrive on and that ordinary citizens, I think, have a hard time matching. You conclude the book with a section called Battle Royale, and we've just seen the outcome of said Battle Royale. I'd like you to talk about uh, the first two years of the Obama administration and the upshot that we're experiencing even now. Well, so it's a big, it's a big topic. Uh, we devote a chapter to the Obama administration uh, before, uh, up to the midterm elections. The book came out before the midterm elections. So, um, but we look at the the legislative record of the first two years, and we're our basic view about this was that the Obama administration faced enormous structural challenges mm-hmm. in uh, trying to pursue an agenda that there was. Um, some understanding about how unbalanced American politics and the American economy had become, and that they had picked a couple of issues, important issues to push back on, um, healthcare reform and financial reform being being the most critical ones. Um, and while we have some criticisms of the administration, I think our, our main view was that given the nature of winner-take-all politics, both the fact that you needed 60 votes in the Senate uh, facing an extremely conservative Republican Party, especially on economic issues, um, and an organizational playing field that is highly skewed in favor of the economically privileged, that it was an enormous challenge for them to try <laughs> to push these big policy boulders up the hill. Um, and so... Um, and and so they did an okay job, I would say, of doing that. Um, you know, the reforms that they achieved were notable, I think, under the under those pressures, um, but way too limited mm-hmm. to really transform uh, the situation that they've inherited. And we've seen uh, how quickly um, organized economic interests have been able to reassert themselves, whether it's the fight over the tax cuts. Really, stri- the extension of the Bush administration's tax cuts, which I think is a really striking story, the extent to which these uh, uh, policies that favor a very, very small fraction of the American public uh, and are not favored in public opinion polls. Uh, and, and have been shown to be unsuccessful in the last 10 years of the economy. They sure certainly didn't get us anywhere then. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the Congressional Budget Office did an analysis of a whole range of, you know, of proposals designed to deal with um, the economic uh, 
uh, challenges that we're facing generate employment. Uh, and of all the options that they looked at, uh, the one that ranked la dead last in terms of its effectiveness, you know, the bang for the buck that you would get, was the extension of these high-end tax cuts. And lo and behold, you know, that's what Congress ends up doing. And Democrats, even before the election, are afraid uh, to, um, to have those, those high-end tax cuts expire. So that's a striking story. Um, and you know, the success of Republicans in, on the one hand, uh, attacking financial reform as a bailout for the banks. I love to say, yeah. <laughs> at the same time that John Boehner is appearing before the American Bankers Association meeting and basically rallying the lobbyists for the bankers and saying you should be supporting Republicans because you know we're the ones who are really looking out for you. I mean, it's astonishing that you could get away uh, with something like that. Uh, to see how quickly uh, the emphasis in Washington has turned towards deficit reduction, uh, even at a time when you know the unemployment there is an unemployment crisis in the United States, not fully captured by just the you know the the naked nine point four percent number, which is, you know, a terrible unemployment number, but really understates the severity of the problem. And yet it's almost not, a, it's not an, an object for, for conversation now. And then, and one, you know, I think last indication of how tight the hold of what the winner take all economy holds on our politics is um, the really astonishing outrage that you've gotten from uh, the, the big winners, the big economic winners, um, when um, there was any indication that the Obama administration or anybody in Washington was going to do anything to limit them, you know, and to impose regulations. I mean, you know, the, um, Obama, it's clear that, you know, many people on, Washington, on Wall Street were absolutely furious at Obama for using terms like fat cat bankers, um, which, given public sentiment out there, I thought was a very mild Right. Uh, thing, thing for him to say. I mean, you know, the opinion polls show, you know, people were, are really, really disgusted by what, what's happened in financial circles. And certainly, you know, Obama's rec, uh, rhetoric, which deeply, uh, you know, clearly deeply offended um, many of the wealthiest uh, people in the country, uh, Obama's rhetoric is nothing compared with the kind of rhetoric that FDR used or that Harry Truman would have used. You know, so to me, it's really striking that, um, you know, that, that somehow, even after uh, the banking industry basically wrecked the economy, uh, that they could be offended that anybody would criticize them um, is, is an indication, I think, of um, how strong their hold has been has become on the American economy and on American politics. Uh, who was it that said there are experts at uh, privatizing their gains and socializing their losses? Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, that is, I, I think that is really quite striking. And again, I mean, it comes back to the passage that I read at the, at the beginning of our our t talk here. Um, that it is remarkable how quickly the banking industry went back to paying out these huge bonuses um, and um, reasserting uh, gambling 
bats really on the on the on the economy. Uh, even as the rest of the economy has been flat on its back, it's really it's astonishing. They opened up that casino really damn fast. It yeah. closed for five minutes. Now, one of the things I like about your book is it's not just an apocalyptic uh, portrait uh, of the country gone to hell, but you, you offer some some uh, rays of hope and some thoughts. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the things that we can do. Well, Jacob and I, as we were working on this book, we, we found ourselves coming back again and again to the experience of American society and American politics in the first third of the 20th century, the progressive era, uh, the struggles of the progressive era, and then on into the New Deal. And it's striking. The, some of the similarities are really striking. Uh, the diagnosis of the problem, I think, is pretty serious, ser- similar. And, and what I mean by that is the recognition that uh, leading progressives had um, that the problem was as much in our politics as it was in our economy, uh, that Washington had effectively been captured uh, by powerful economic interests, and that without serious attention to that dimension of the problem, um, and and in particular to the ability of those powerful interests to simply block any efforts by government to create some kind of countervailing mm-hmm. pressures uh, that might limit um, uh, the ability of these powerful interests to hoover up uh, the rewards that were out there. Um, that without some effort to address that problem, you were never going to fix the kind of economic and social challenges that the country faced. And so that, that really resonated with us and I think is, um, uh, speaks across a period of a century to the kinds of challenges that we face. But there's also, we hope, a similarity in the recognition that this was going to be a long slog uh, to turn things around. Um, progressives won important victories in the first two decades of the 1900s, uh, but they also lost uh, on some fundamental issues, and in many cases, uh, fractious. Or they were, you know, yes, they were. They were divided inter- internally. This is the, fam- the 1912 election, famous example of this, when Teddy Roosevelt breaks off to to run as the bull moose candidate. Uh, but uh, but also there was very powerful they were, they had powerful opponents uh, mm-hmm. who mobi- who counter mobilized uh, and many of the things that were discussed in the early 1900s that didn't happen didn't come to light for you know two more decades until you had the New Deal where you did get you know much more fundamental still compromises right but much more fundamental reforms of industrial relations, of, um, of all sorts of financial activities having to do with banking and the stock market, corporate governance. Uh, all of these systems went under you know, quite dramatic changes in the 1930s in a way uh, that I think really did set the stage for, to my mind, a much healthier mixed economy uh, that produced something that looked like broadland uh, over the, the middle part of the 20th century up and up until the 1970s. So we see something, um, hopefully it doesn't take a great depression to do it, um, but we do see something encouraging about that to recognize that uh, if one understands uh, more clearly what's, ha- what's been happening and thinks about both the kinds of policy reforms that are necessary, but also 
what needs to be done politically in order to make those reforms possible. And there we would say um, organization is critical. Uh, finding ways um, to, uh, to encourage people, especially around economic issues, middle class, working class people, to, to uh, recognize that they need to build organizational strength around economic issues. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that needs to happen over the long haul to turn this around. I've been speaking with Paul Pearson, with Jacob S. Hacker. He's the author of Winner-Take-All Politics, How Washington Made the Rich Richer and Turned Its Back on the Middle Class. Thank you for speaking with me, Paul. I really enjoyed this talk. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.